Hi, welcome to our podcast. To learn more about Liverpool One Church, join us live, give financially and to get involved, head to liverpoolonechurch.com. We believe God wants to do great things in and through your life today. Enjoy this message. It is so great to have you in church today. I mean, seriously, happy Easter, happy Resurrection Sunday. I hope that you have been blessed with as much Cadbury's chocolate as you can handle that will see you through the next couple of days. It really is great to have you with us in church today, not only for those of you that are gathered in the room, but for everybody that's joining us online as well. And let me just say this, um, I, I get it that Easter is perhaps not too dissimilar to Christmas in the sense that even people who don't ordinarily come to church are more willing to maybe check church out around the Easter or Christmas time. So if you're in church today, just checking things out, maybe you've been dragged along on the promise of a date, or maybe you're here for only the food afterwards, I just want to let you know, you are so welcome here, and even more than building a church, actually what we want to do is build a community that is like family, and you're welcome to be included as part of the family this Easter. You know, speaking about families, I just wonder for a moment, is there a member of your family, of your close circle of maybe friends or relatives that you know who is the guy or the girl that is always losing something. Like they're the ones that whenever you're about to leave the house, like they can't find their keys. Or you're just about to go on a date and all of a sudden they can't find their wallet. Or the worst thing that causes the most amount of stress is there's someone that is continuously losing their phone, right? I'm sure that every single one of us knows of a guy or a girl that's like that. Or maybe you're feeling a little bit awkward right now because you know that you are the guy or the girl that's like that. Like you lose everything. And when you lose stuff, isn't it amazing just how much stress it causes in your life? I mean, I've noticed this in our family unit. When my wife loses something, it gets pretty stressy. It gets pretty tense. It's just her wiring and it's my wiring too. But just the other month, somebody very kindly stole her laptop. Now, there's one thing I think that's worse than having your laptop stolen, and that's having your laptop stolen and then going to update your new laptop with all of your old documents, and then you realise that your previous seven years' worth of work had not in fact backed up to the iCloud, which means that you lose all of your previous seven years' worth of work. And, you know, many of you will know Emma, my wife, and she leads church here alongside me. And you've got to know, like, when I say seven years of work, what I actually mean is seven years' worth of preaches and teachings and talks. And, I mean, I can only imagine whoever it is that ends up being the recipient of that laptop. I mean, if they don't find Jesus, seriously... I mean, the chances are real high. Someone is going to get saved through the opening of Emma's laptop. But there's one thing that's worse than losing all of your stuff, and that's when you lose stuff that's related to your tech. And when you lose all of your seven years worth of work, man, it causes some stress. Now, some would say that that's down to user error. 
Apple would, uh, Emma would say that's solely the responsibility and the problem caused by Apple um, and we should let them know about this. However, when you lose something, it's the same in your house as it is in mine. Like everything just gets a little bit stressy. Life feels a little bit harder, right? Things can feel a little bit tense. And I think it's that idea of losing something that we can all find common, common ground with those that were closest to Jesus. I mean, even as we talk about the Easter story today, if you've ever thought that you'd never have anything in common with any of the Bible characters, I promise you, if you've ever lost anything in your life, then you will be feeling the exact same feelings and emotions that those that were closest to Jesus felt. Because it was around this first Easter time, 2,000 and something years ago, where the disciples those that were closest to Jesus, their life got turned upside down. They didn't lose seven years worth of their work. They didn't lose a mobile phone or a set of keys or a wallet. They lost absolutely everything. And we know what this is like because some of you, you've lost a job. Others of you, you've lost a contract. Some of you, you've lost the financial security that you were working towards. Others, you've lost the relationship. He walked out and it wasn't your fault, her fault, but she walked out. Like, you know what it's like to lose someone. Some of you have lost a loved one and it felt cruel and it felt unkind. And you went to sleep that night demanding to know from God, why is this happening to me? Because you've lost something that was important to you. Well, right here, right now on this first Easter story, these disciples, they encountered three days where they lost everything. I mean, for them, it was like, for us, you lose your car, your job, your wife, and your dog in the same, like, 72-hour window. That's what they were experiencing. Around this first Easter story was a time when all of their dreams were dashed, their hopes were gone, and all of their future aspirations had completely vanished away from them. And that's really the context of some of the Bible scripture that we're going to jump into today. It was at the time when the disciples were at their lowest. Why? Because they felt like they had lost everything. So let's go to the Gospel of John. We're going to go John chapter 20, verse 1. Early on Sunday morning, it was still dark, and Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Let's just pause there for a moment. So here we are on the very first Easter Sunday morning and Mary Magdalene, who was one of those that had been closest to Jesus, is now dashing to the tomb. And she was a huge follower of Jesus. And she was dashing to the tomb, believing the same thing that you and I would have believed if we were in her shoes. And that was, she had witnessed Jesus killed and crucified. So she was rushing to the tomb, expecting to find a dead Jesus. She was expecting to find the body of a good man, the body of a good teacher, the body of a well-respected rabbi who many people were adhered to. He, she was somebody that had heard the parables, she had witnessed the miracles, 
To Mary Magdalene, Jesus was like nobody else that she'd ever met. But on her Easter Sunday, she was going to the tomb expecting Jesus to be dead. And why would you not expect that if you had witnessed him crucified? So she's running to the tomb. And one of the things that I just want you to know is that typically what would happen is when a body had been crucified by the Roman Empire, they would never really allow the friends or the family to have the opportunity to ceremonially bury the body. What they would impose is that the body would literally be discarded on the city dump. It would be taken outside of the city and the body would just be left there to rot. Now, what's interesting is is that in this culture where we're talking about, in order to be able to bury a body from somebody that had been crucified, as was the case with Jesus, then there must have been an official somewhere that probably took a bribe. And what we know is that there was a tomb that was provided by a man called Joseph of Arimathea. And I think that most scholars would agree now and say that probably Joseph and Nicodemus, who were people of affluence and people of influence, maybe had a word with Pilate or some other Roman officials, and they were given the right to place the body of Jesus in a tomb. It was the burying ceremony that was fit for somebody that had died, but not for somebody that had been crucified. And Mary Magdalene, she would have known about this because what would happen is these bodies, they would have been like wrapped in linen cloth and they would have been embalmed. In other words, made ready for burial. And then the body would actually, it's a little bit gross, but the body would just rot away. And then eventually after years, there would be nothing left other than bones. And these bones they would be placed in what was referred to as a bone box. In fact, they're called an ossuary box. Here's a picture of one now. And all around Israel and all around the near Middle Eastern region, you can find thousands of these ossuary boxes that are just full of the bones of people that had previously died. So I think that Mary knew that Joseph and Nicodemus would have made ready the body. And I think that this bothered her a little bit. I think there was something about Mary where she was literally saying, I know two guys have done this. I can definitely do a better job. So Mary Magdalene is now rushing to the tomb because she's probably wanting to take the dead Jesus' body and wrap it in linen and get it ready for the burial process. A number of years ago, I can remember having a conversation with my wife, Emma, and I said, Em, do you love me? And she looked at me in the eyes and she was like, yes. I said, Emma, would you do anything for me? And she looked at me in the eyes in that meaningful way. And she said, yes. I said, if I had died and had been left rotting in a tomb for three days, would you be willing to come back and wrap my dirty, stinky, smelly, dead body? She looked at me in the eyes and said, no chance. But Mary Magdalene, she was absolutely committed to this relationship with Jesus so much that she thought that these boys wouldn't have done a good enough job. So she was going to go and unwrap the body in the blood, in the mess, in the carnage after the crucifixion and get the body ready for burial. My point is, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb knowing 
that Jesus was dead and expecting to find a dead Christ's body. When she got to the tomb and she found that the tomb had been rolled away, there was nobody more surprised than her. She was like, what the is going on here? This didn't make any sense to her at all. She couldn't believe what she'd found. She couldn't believe that the stone had been rolled, rolled away. She did not assume that Jesus had been raised from the dead back to life. Let's continue the story. So she ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they have taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So here we find Mary, having arrived at the tomb, the, the stone has been rolled away, there is nobody inside. So what does she do? She runs now to find the other disciples who note are also not at the tomb either. In fact, the disciples weren't around the tomb at all. They'd gone into hiding. They were literally in a discreet location in a house in Jerusalem and they were fearing for their lives because they'd been followers of Jesus and they'd just seen what the Romans had just done to Jesus himself and now they were concerned for their own safety. If you're in church today, and if you're not planning on coming back until Christmas, I'm so glad that you're here. But if you're in church for Easter and you're thinking, maybe I'll come back again in December, there's one thing that I just want you to know. There's one thing that I want you to walk out of here today knowing, thinking about, and it's simply this. None of those that were closest to Jesus were stood outside the tomb, counting down from 10, expecting Jesus to be raised back to life. Everybody was expecting to find a dead Jesus. Nobody was expecting the resurrection. And these, by the way, these were the men and women that were closest to Jesus. They had traveled with him from city to city, from town to town. They'd witnessed the miracles. They were there when he sat on the banks of the river and he told parables. They were there when he went up the mountain. He spoke truth and wisdom into the lives of all those that were following him. They were there. But just like you and I, they were believing the same thing that we would believe if we had seen what had happened to Jesus happened before our own eyes, they would have taken a step back and just thought, well, he must have been a good man. He gave some good teaching. It kind of made sense. But now we've lost everything. Now everything is gone. And just to reiterate the point, she said to the disciples, meaning Mary, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb. We don't know where they've put him. She did not say, guys, listen, I think that Jesus might be up to something. She didn't go in and make an announcement like, I think it's happened. He's now been brought back to life. She went in and she was like, I think someone's taken the body. What are we gonna do? And they were like, what? Let's move on in the story. Because Luke 24 recounts the same period of time and it now tells us exactly what these closest followers of Jesus were thinking and feeling. It says that it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and several other women who told the apostles what had happened. But the story sounded like nonsense to the men. So they didn't believe. Again, 
We can all relate to this because they're just thinking and assuming the same thing that we would think. This is crazy. This is nonsense. This is ridiculous. This is some kind of crazy made up fable. This is just absurd. I mean, and think about it. This is Peter, James and John. This, this is the three guys who Jesus was closest to that when he looked them in the eyes and said, come and follow me, they were like, let's go, Jesus. Where do you wanna go? You tell us to jump and just shout out how high we are there. And now they were the ones saying, I think it's all nonsense now. I think it's just rubbish. I don't believe in this at all. You don't see people come back to life when you've witnessed all of their bodily fluids drain from them. There's no way that this is true. And what's interesting about Peter, James, and John, and you can, this is really cool, you can check this out for yourself. So I would even encourage you to, don't take my word for it, but go and, go and read the New Testament for yourself. But Peter, James, and John, they actually documented their disbelief. They actually recorded how much they struggled with this. They were adamant. This is just absolute nonsense. They were literally trying to figure out a way to make sense of this, and they couldn't. You know, if you were going to concoct a lie, if you were going to create a story, if you were going to give a false witness account of something happening, if you were going to create a fable, then what you would do is the same thing that I would do, and that's I would inject me into the central theme of the story, and I would make me out to be the hero. I would make me out to be the one that when nobody else believed anything good can come from this, I was the one that always stayed faithful to Christ. When no one else believed, I believed. Everyone else thought it was a lie, but I thought it was true. Everybody else said it was nonsense, but I thought this was genuine all the way. That's the story that I would tell if this were a fabrication of truth. I would have made a story and it would have looked like this. Whilst nobody else believed, I packed a bag, I packed a rucksack and I'd seen Jesus crucified, but I was so convinced that he was gonna be coming back to life that I was there at the tomb waiting. In fact, hundreds of people followed Jesus, but there was only me, Peter, James and John. And we sat outside the tomb. And in fact, we brought snacks, we brought drinks. We nipped into Asda on the way. We made a picnic of it because we didn't know exactly the time, but we knew, we were convinced he's gonna be coming back to life. And then literally as dawn began to break, you would write the story that says, we knew it was gonna happen. So we all started together in a triumphant voice to shout down, 10, nine, get ready guys, he's coming, eight, seven, six, it's time to pop the Prosecco because he's about to come back to life, five, four, hey, and now you'd cue the brass band that you'd hired in from a local orchestra, three, two, one, whilst nobody else believed, but da-da, here he is, here's Jesus. He's the risen saviour of the world and nobody else believed, but we got it right. That's the story that I would write. I think that's the story that you would write. You don't write the story that records how you thought it was all nonsense. You don't write the story 
that intimately details every aspect of the cowardice that exists in your life, as was the case with Peter, where he got so scared about what was going to happen to him, he couldn't even bring himself to tell a small girl around a campfire that he was a follower of Jesus. That's not the story that you would write. You don't write a story that says, immediately after Jesus was killed on the cross, we all ran and hid in a house on the outskirts of town. You don't write that story. You write a story where you inject yourself as the hero. Whilst everybody else didn't believe, you stayed strong. You believed. You don't write a story that says, I thought that this was nonsense. This sounds really unbelievable. Nobody's ever going to believe this, but this is what we had witnessed. You see, getting back to the story of the crucifixion, there's something that you have to know. This same group of people that recorded how they were cowardly, how they were out in hiding, fearing for their life, how some of them had literally disowned Jesus in his, in his greatest hour of need, these same people, not months, not years, not decades after, but weeks after, were the same people that went through all the towns and cities of Jerusalem and nearby. And do you know what they started to tell people? They did not start to tell people about the teachings of Jesus. They didn't recount the parables that he taught. In other words, they didn't walk around and say, hey, listen, guys, can I just tell you about the story about the Samaritan woman? Hey, have you heard about the one about Zacchaeus and he climbs a tree? Hey, have you heard about this one time where Jesus, he literally almost got into a fight in the temple and he flipped the tables over. They didn't go around telling those stories. They went around saying one thing. He was dead, but now he's alive. I saw him beaten and killed and crucified with my own eyes. But now I've seen him as the risen son of God. Now I've seen him brought back to life. That was the story that they started to tell. The story that they started to tell was not one of, I can't give you all of the evidence, but I can tell you what I've experienced. And he was dead and I've seen him alive. This is the story. This is the witness that I can give. And in fact, even Peter, he gets up in the book of Acts and he starts to speak about Jesus who had risen from the dead. And even Peter, the one that was most cowardly, he writes this in Acts 3. He says, You disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer be released to you. Check this. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And we are witnesses to this. It wasn't a statement of belief. It was a statement of experience. It wasn't a statement of factual or intellectual language and verbiage. He was just going, guys, I don't know how to tell you this, but the same Jesus that I saw crucified on the cross is the same Jesus that I saw raised back to life 
Only God can do that. And if God can do that, then I'm with him. And you've got to know this because you made an error. You made a mistake. You thought that you could hold him down, but you couldn't at all. So now I ask the question, if that's the story that Peter went about saying, is it only the case that God worked in their lives or does He still work in this way in our lives today too? In the same way that He gave Peter a story, can He give you a story too? In the same way that the disciples had this story of saying, I can't explain everything, but I can tell you about what I've experienced. And what I've experienced is that God is good and God is gracious and He is real and He wants a relationship with me. And He's made it possible through the death, the burial and the resurrection of the one and only Son for me to know Him. Is it possible that He's still writing stories today. So as the band sing over you, is it possible that He's still writing a story in your life today? Thanks for joining us today. We hope that you can take that message and apply it to your life. Also, don't forget to take a moment to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. To get connected or stay more connected to the life of Liverpool One Church and learn how you can join us live, visit liverpoolonechurch.com. Thanks again for joining us and we hope to see you again soon.